On April 10, 1912, the RMS Titanic set sail from England. But this wasn't the launch of a regular ship. The Titanic was the largest liner ever built at the time. It was 882 feet long. That's nearly the size of three soccer fields. And measured from the hull to the top of the smokestacks, the ship was an impressive 175 feet tall. That's the size of a 17-story building. Deemed unsinkable, it took 3,000 workers almost three years to build. But a mere four days into its very first voyage, at 11.40 p.m., the ship collided with an iceberg and was lost beneath the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. It took the liner only two hours and 40 minutes to sink. And of more than 2,200 passengers and crew members on board, only 706 survived. The wreck would remain lost for another 73 years, hiding its many secrets within the frigid Atlantic waters. And if it wasn't for a man whose whole life had been devoted to exploring the sea, the giant ship might have remained lost for a lot longer. That man was Robert Ballard. As a child, Ballard was obsessed with the ocean. This fascination started when he was just 12 years old. That's when he watched a film adaptation of Jules Verne's science fiction novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It had everything to spark a young person's imagination, from adventure and strange creatures to a powerful underwater vehicle called the Nautilus. It could travel anywhere in the world you want it to go. From that moment, life on dry land was no longer in Ballard's future. When he was 23, he was assigned to the Deep Submergence Group. There, he helped develop techniques to search the ocean floor. His biggest accomplishment was the creation of Alvin. It was a small, easy-to-maneuver submarine that could carry three people. It also featured an external mechanical arm designed to gather underwater samples while the crew remained safe and dry inside. Alvin the submarine quickly proved useful for a variety of tasks. For example, once it was used to track down an aircraft that had crashed into the sea. But the vessel experienced a series of setbacks. In one case, it was attacked by a swordfish, which caused the submarine to resurface quickly. The swordfish, still stuck in the outer skin of the submarine, became that night's dinner. And in October 1968, the submarine was being lowered into the water when the cables holding it snapped, sending it careening into the ocean along with three crew members on board. And because the small vessel was still open, it immediately filled with water and quickly began to sink. Luckily, the crew managed to escape, but Alvin was gone. Bad weather hampered multiple attempts to recover the vessel. It wasn't until the following year that it was finally returned to the surface. In time, Alvin would be improved. Its hull would be strengthened by titanium, giving it a higher depth rating thus making it even better suited for ocean exploration. The specialized submarine would come in handy in many of Ballard's 100-plus expeditions. The man was one of the first to explore an underwater mountain chain called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge in the Atlantic Ocean. And when he found thermal vents in the Galapagos Rift in the late 70s, he also helped discover and document the process of chemosynthesis. That's a complicated chemical synthesis of food energy by bacteria.
But his biggest discovery was still to come. Ballard claimed he'd never been a Titanic fanatic, but he eventually became obsessed with finding the ship after watching other explorers try and fail. As he said, Titanic was clearly the big Mount Everest at the time. Many others had tried, many that I thought would have succeeded or should have succeeded but didn't. Ballard began thinking about finding the ship as early as 1973, and four years later, he actually made an attempt. He used the deep-sea salvage vessel Sea Probe, which was a drill ship equipped with cameras and sonar. But he was forced to give up when the drilling pipe broke. It just wasn't his time. In the early 80s, a Texas oil man named Jack Grimm tried to find the wreck on three different occasions. Once, Grimm was actually right over the Titanic, but his equipment failed to detect it. That's what we call extreme bad luck. Ballard was just biding his time. He needed a plan and some help. The first issue was getting down to the bottom of the Atlantic. The furthest down he had ever traveled before was 20,000 feet. And this trip took him three hours. And that didn't include the way back up. Ballard knew he could use Alvin already enhanced with a titanium hull to withstand the pressure of the ocean. But he also needed something that didn't require him to actually go down with it. An unpiloted remote-controlled submarine would be ideal. But first, he would have to create one. He reached out to the authorities, hoping they would provide funding for his project. And though officials had no interest in the Titanic, they were willing to help. Ah, but there was a catch. Ballard had to first focus on tracking down two submarines, the Thresher and the Scorpion, which had sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in the 1960s. The authorities were hoping to study them to find out why they had sunk in the first place. They also wanted to know if they could be recovered or if it was safe to leave them on the ocean floor. Only when he had successfully completed this task would he be free to use any remaining time on his contract to find the Titanic. With no other options for funding, Ballard took the offer. He got to work. First, he created two new devices. Argo was an unpiloted deep-toed undersea video camera sled. It was designed to take photos and record videos from a series of cameras mounted on it. It could work at depths of up to 20,000 feet and it could also explore nearly 98% of the ocean floor. Argo was supposed to be tethered to a boat. As the boat moved, Argo would be pulled behind, floating just above the ocean floor. The camera would then transmit images to the surface. The second device was a small robotic vehicle called Jason Jr. It was also controlled remotely, which allowed the crew inside a submarine, like Alvin, to get closer to and photograph underwater objects. Ballard was now ready. He knew he had to find those submarines quickly. And it didn't take him long. Much to his relief, the search was relatively simple, and he was able to fulfill his obligations with 12 days to spare. With almost two weeks to devote to finding the Titanic, he set out to explore the ocean. He focused the search close to Newfoundland, Canada, pulling Argo along the ocean floor and reviewing the images it collected. And after a few days of nothing, 
they eventually found riveted hull plates in a boiler. Could this be it? The next day, a ship's large bow was revealed. On September 1, 1985, Ballard and his fellow crew members realized they had finally found the infamous ship. The discovery resulted in a mix of emotions. Ballard was excited to be the first to find the Titanic's final resting place. But he was also overwhelmed by the sense of grief for those who had suffered when the ship had gone down. Over the next four days, the crew explored the wreck. They found the crow's nest from where the iceberg had first been spotted. Plus, there was finally evidence of how the massive ship had split in two before sinking, with both halves of the ship found. There was furniture and dinnerware, and sadly, several leather shoes of those who hadn't made it to safety were scattered about the ocean floor. Ballard succeeded where others had failed and became an instant celebrity around the world. You'd think that locating the Titanic would be enough for one man, but not for Ballard. In 2019, he took on the challenge of solving another mystery, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Earhart had attempted to be the first woman to fly around the world. Unfortunately, she disappeared somewhere over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. She and her plane were never found. Ballard hoped that his luck with the Titanic would help with finding where Earhart had gone down. But his expedition failed to find anything. And though Robert Ballard has found more shipwrecks than anybody else, it's only the tip of the iceberg. It's estimated that there are over 3 million shipwrecks in the ocean, and Ballard has only located 100 of them. Now in his late 70s, the man is hoping to encourage young people to continue his work of exploring the ocean and its many mysteries. In 1989, he started the Jason Learning Project to inspire grade school students to pursue science, technology, engineering, and math. He has his own research vessel called the EV Nautilus, after the name of the submarine in Jules Verne's novel, a fitting tribute to the story that inspired his career. Once a famous giant, the largest ship of that time, now two grand pieces lying on the ocean bottom about 2,000 feet apart, torn by the catastrophic collision of time itself. The stern of the Titanic got completely ruined after hitting the ocean floor, but you can still recognize the bow since many interiors were left preserved. There's a type of bacteria found on the ship's rusticles. A rusticle is this brownish formation of rust. It occurs deep underwater when the wrought iron the ship is made of oxidizes. It means the bacteria eat the iron of the Titanic's hull piece by piece. And it seems they might finish their snack by 2030, way sooner than when anyone would expect the wreck to be gone forever. You may think it would probably be easier to take the wreck out of the water so that we got to keep it, but it would fall apart if anyone tried to do that. It's been in the water for more than 110 years now and is now so rusty that no one would be able to reconstruct some parts even if we managed to get the ship out of the ocean depths. What do you think? Could any of about 700 people that had survived the sinking of the Titanic hear it hit the ocean bottom? The largest ship that had ever been made till then disappeared literally before their eyes after all. But sound most likely wouldn't have traveled from water to air. 
We can't hear that well in water because our bodies are not designed to hear in such environments. And although passengers were close to the sinking site, the Titanic still hit the bottom a long distance away, 12,500 feet. There are so many underwater landslides and earthquakes we cannot hear, and they make way more noise than a single ship slamming into the ocean floor. Most vibrations and sounds must have dispersed over a large area. Also, the down blast of water, which many believe hit the Titanic after it had touched the bottom of the ocean, would have pushed back the majority of the potential acoustic vibrations. Plus, the bottom of the ocean is not hard enough to produce such loud noises. Many survivors said they had heard terrifying noises as the Titanic was breaking apart, but none mentioned hearing anything after the ship disappeared below the surface of the water. Some survivors shared how chaotic it was when passengers, mainly women and children, were getting into lifeboats. There weren't enough boats, and still, some of them weren't even filled to their full capacity. No one knew how to react properly in such a situation. The lifeboat drill had been scheduled for the morning before the Titanic hit the iceberg, but for some reason, it got canceled. A giant ocean liner everyone believes is unsinkable takes a trip across the ocean. On its way, it strikes an iceberg and sinks. Yeah, we all know how the story goes. But what's scary is that it's also the plot of The Wreck of the Titan, a novel published in 1898, 14 years before the Titanic went to the ocean bottom or was even constructed. In the novel, the Titan, what a scarily accurate name too, didn't have enough life jackets, vests, and lifeboats for all the passengers on board. It was also the largest ship of that time, almost identical in size to the Titanic, and both the Titan and Titanic sank in April. Dorothy Gibson was an American silent film actress. She was also one of the Titanic passengers. She survived the catastrophe. Right after she came to New York, she started filming Saved from the Titanic. The film was released only one month after the ship sank. Dorothy was even wearing the same shoes and clothes she had worn when she had actually been on the ship. The movie was successful, but it got destroyed in a fire, so it only exists in memories, like Jack Dawson. Titanic wasn't all alone in the restless waves of the cold ocean near the iceberg it struck. The SS Californian was relatively close. Their radio was shut off for that night, though. At one moment, the crew members noticed mysterious lights in the sky. They immediately went to wake their captain up to tell him, but he issued no orders. Some believed it was just fireworks. They never realized it was actually a call for help. The flares, crew members of the Titanic sent off to the sky, hoping someone would notice. By the time the SS Californian got the SOS message, it was already too late. Some say a full moon may have been the reason the iceberg crossed paths with the gigantic ship. A full moon may have caused incredibly strong tides that eventually sent multiple icebergs southward, right when the Titanic was crossing that area. Would you dare to taste cheese from the Titanic? The wreck has been under the ocean surface for more than 100 years now. It took more than 70 years to find it. By that time, most of the food that had gone down together with the ship had, of course, spoiled. But it's possible there's still some of it left. Some foods are protected from decay. For example, cheese. 
The microbes that turn milk into cheese create special conditions to protect the product from spoiling. Multiple things have survived the Titanic. A handwritten letter where a mother and a daughter wrote to the girl's grandma about the amazing journey they were on together. The letter has been around for more than 100 years and got sold at an auction. A battered pair of white cotton gloves was found in the wreck. Musicians on the Titanic played till the very last moment. Sheet music and one violin were found among the wreckage. The bell one of the crew members rang three times to warn there was a very close iceberg on their way. A pocket watch that stopped at 1.45 a.m., the time when the ship went under the water. Perhaps one person could have changed what happened on the Titanic. David Blair was a pretty lucky man. He was supposed to take the spot of the second officer of the Titanic. He was pulled out at the last moment, which eventually saved his life. It was a great thing for him, but something clouded his joy. What if he was the only person who could have done something to save the ship and the passengers? Back in the day, ships didn't have smart advanced technology like they do today. They couldn't see a threat on the horizon. Binoculars were pretty helpful, but the crew members on the Titanic didn't have access to the room where they were kept. David Blair was the man responsible for the keys. He left the ship in a hurry and forgot to hand over the keys that were in his pocket. Maybe if the crew members had had access to the binoculars, they would have seen the iceberg on time and had enough time to change course. It's possible that the giant iceberg that sent the Titanic to the ocean bottom was made of snow that had fallen in southwest Greenland. Scientists even used a computer model to calculate the paths the iceberg took in any given year, taking into consideration ocean currents and weather readings for that year. It's possible that the iceberg was 1,700 feet long, with a weight of around 75 tons. By the time it collided with the Titanic, it had dwindled down to only 1.5 tons. Violet Constance Jessup was, as many called her, Miss Unsinkable. She was only 24 years old when she joined the Titanic crew as a stewardess. On the tragic night when the ship struck the iceberg, she was lying in bed. As soon as she heard that something was going on, she got dressed and quickly went to the deck. Violet helped passengers get into lifeboats. Four years later, she was on the Britannic, the Titanic's sister ship. Once again, the ship started sinking. Not only did the woman survive another accident, but she was also once again the one helping other people to escape the vessel before it disappeared below the surface. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Meet Arthur John Priest. No, he isn't famous for being a painter or for discovering some long-lost treasure. He didn't invent some cool gadget or break any world records. No, Arthur John Priest is famous simply for being unsinkable. Proving one can be both lucky and unlucky at the same time, Priest was involved in, and survived, several mishaps at sea, including the fateful maiden voyage of the Titanic. Priest was not a rich man interested in sailing for pleasure. He was part of the working class, employed as a stoker or fireman, stuck for hours within the hot bowels of large steam-powered vessels. His job was dirty and difficult. He was responsible for keeping the furnaces lit, feeding them coal to ensure enough steam was produced for the engines to work. 
he had to be careful about not overheating the system or setting fire to the whole ship. The furnaces had to be carefully watched and constantly fed. He breathed it all in a while, working and fighting with the sweat and the dirt. He would often work shirtless because of the heat and was always covered in black coal dust. And when he finally had a break, his shared living quarters were nearby in the same part of the ship. He must have been good at his job though, because he had no trouble finding work. But wherever he went, bad luck seemed to follow. The first incident was a mild one. As a young man, Priest worked on the RMS Asturias. The passenger liner first set sail in 1907, traveling between Southampton in the UK to Buenos Aires in Argentina. At some point during its maiden voyage, the ship suffered a small collision. The damage was bad enough that the ship returned for repairs. Thankfully, there were no reports of any serious injuries. Priest, unfazed, simply went to work on another ship. But his bad luck lingered on the Asturias. In 1914, the Asturias became a hospital ship, helping care for sick men and women around Europe while bringing them home to England. But in March 1917, at just around midnight, the ship was struck by a foreign object. Its hull was breached and the engine room flooded. The captain ordered everyone to abandon the ship, sending crew, patients, and health staff scrambling for the lifeboats. The vessel was still moving, powering through the water because the main controls, located within the flooded engine room, could not be turned off. The captain refused to leave the ship while people were still trying to escape. He was able to aim the Asturias towards Bolthead where it finally hit land and couldn't sink. The remaining lifeboats were lowered and the final survivors made it to safety. When they studied the damage on the ship later, the Asturias was declared a total write-off. It might be hard to pin this particular disaster on Priest. After all, he wasn't even on the ship at the time. But it seemed that many of the ships on which he served were destined for trouble. His bad luck followed him to his next job on the RMS Olympic, a massive ocean liner. The Olympic was big. In fact, it had been designed and built as part of the fleet that included the Titanic. But with size came sacrifice. The Olympic was great at moving in one direction, but very difficult to handle when it needed to turn. It was September 1911. The Olympic was trying to alter its course. The Hawk, a smaller ship sailing nearby, didn't give the larger vessel enough room to maneuver, and the two slammed into each other. Because the Hawk was engineered to deal with potential confrontations when out at sea, its reinforced bow tore through the Olympic. Two large gashes appeared on the ocean liner's side. The propeller shaft was badly twisted. And worse, the ship began to take on water. Somehow, the Olympic made it to shore without sinking, and nobody was seriously hurt. Priest had no idea that this was just a small taste of what his future held for him. He next found employment on a brand new ship, a better ship, an unsinkable marvel that was said to be the biggest vessel to have ever been built. Yes, he was going to work on the Titanic. And what a job. It took 29 boilers, requiring 850 tons of coal a day to produce enough steam to power the Titanic. Priest was just one of 150 stokers toiling away in the ship's underbelly, keeping those fires burning day and night. He made around $30 a month. But on April 14, 1912, he would find himself flung from a world of extreme heat to one of blistering cold. At approximately 11.35 p.m., the crew spotted an iceberg. The Titanic tried to avoid it, 
but the alarm had been sounded too late. Five minutes later, the two collided. The iceberg tore through the hull, and the once watertight compartments inside were badly ruptured. As the cold Atlantic water flooded in, the ship began to sink. Distress signals were sent, but the closest ship, the Carpathia, was over three hours away. In the dark of night and stuck in the middle of nowhere, the crew and passengers panicked. Those who could scrambled for the lifeboats. Others jumped into the icy waters. In total, only 706 survived that terrible night. Priest, at the time of the collision, was down in the ship's lower quarters. He was on break, relaxing from a hard day of work. And as the ship went down, so did his chances of survival. He and his fellow workers were in the most dangerous position on the ship. They had to make their way through a maze of corridors and gangways, some of which were flooded in a mad dash to the deck. And then they faced the frigid water, jumping in and desperately swimming to safety. The ocean was so cold that Priest even suffered frostbite before finding his way onto a lifeboat. He was one of only 44 stokers to survive that night. After an experience like that, most of us would never set foot on a boat again. But Priest had to work. His next job also ended in disaster. He was offered employment on the HMS Alcantara. It went down in 1916, and Priest was again one of the few to make it to safety. He was badly wounded in the process. But he kept pressing his luck, and his next job as a stoker may have felt eerily familiar. He would be working on a ship built by the same people behind both the Olympic and the Titanic. And this ship, named the Britannic, was the biggest of the three. It was also believed to be a superior vessel, fitted with new safety features after the Titanic sank. For example, it had 48 open lifeboats, 46 of which were the largest ever used on a ship before. Two of these were even motorized and equipped with special communication devices. The good news? The Britannic survived its first trip without incident. It was already doing better than the Titanic ever did. However, on November 21, 1916, the Britannic was shaken by a loud explosion while traveling through the key channel in the Aegean Sea. The hull was damaged, and some of the compartments began to fill with water. But, unlike the Titanic, the Britannic had been designed for just such an emergency. It had been fitted with five watertight bulkheads. Intact, these would help keep the ship safe and floating for a much longer period of time. But there was one issue. Portholes along the lower decks had foolishly been left open. As the ship tilted, the portholes let in water, which flooded the Britannic and hastened its descent into the sea. This effectively made those watertight bulkheads useless. The ship was going down fast, much faster, in fact, than the Titanic had sunk. 35 of the lifeboats were successfully launched, saving most on board. Of the 1,066 passengers and crew, 1,036 survived. Priest, his luck intact, was one of them. And yet, he still wasn't done with a life at sea. He accepted a position as a stoker on the Donegal. It was a smaller passenger ferry that had been converted for use as a hospital boat. In April 1917, it was struck by a foreign object while fleeing an unsafe situation. And though he suffered from a head injury, Priest was again one of the survivors. It took experiencing two collisions and four sinkings before Priest was finally ready to retire. In fact, he reportedly said he only gave it up because no one wanted to sail with him. Can you blame them? 
he would live out the rest of his life on dry land in Southampton, England, with his wife Annie and their three sons. But Arthur John Priest would always be remembered as the unsinkable stoker. <laughs>